If you've got your Bibles, we're going today to 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the first half of the chapter. It actually marks a pretty significant transition in the book. Remember, originally, 1 Kings and 2 Kings were one book. And so as we come to this point in 2 Kings, it really is a transition in the way the story is being told. We've talked about how the role of these prophets that are central in Kings, Elijah and now Elisha, how they were used by God to speak God's words to Israel. And often those words they were speaking was a warning to them, to show them that God was willing to intervene on their behalf in miraculous ways. But if they continued to turn away from God, there would be inevitable consequences to it as well. As we work through chapter 8, we discovered that Elijah and Elisha are ultimately unsuccessful whenever it comes to this task of calling Israel back to God. It's one of the devastating realities of these two books, that after everything they've seen, after everything God has done for them, after all that they have had by God's miraculous intervention, again and again, these kings and the people of Israel turn away from God and turn to the nations around them. That isn't a kind of indictment on men like Elijah and Elisha. It wasn't some prophetic lack. They used the wrong words or had the wrong explanation. Over and over, they speak with prophetic clarity. They speak with the words God has given them. Their failure is a witness instead to the way in which human hearts are so easily hardened against God and how over and over Israel, after all they've received, hardened their hearts time and time again, even after miracles, even after divine intervention, Even after Elisha warns them and speaks of God's better way and the destruction to come, still having heard that message, they turn away. Um, Things in 2 Kings do not get all that much better. Israel will continue to suffer under the consequences of their rebellion against God. This book isn't a kind of fairy tale with some sort of happily ever after ending at the end of it. It is, in fact, the book a kind of warning. And this passage we come to in chapter 8 is certainly in line with that warning of the entire book. In chapter 8, we're going to look at two stories that I think are meant to be read side by side. One in which grace is received and one in which judgment is prophesied to come. These are meant to be read as kind of foils to each other. These two ways of thinking or being or seeing that we have before us. The first, the Shunammite woman, who we've seen before in the book of 2 Kings, reappears. Remember, she was the wealthy, barren woman who had built a place for uh, Elisha to stay in as he passed. She had received a son because of God's gratitude, but then lost that son. And Elisha, through prayer, brought the boy back to life. She reappears in this story. And then also we're introduced to a second story, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who has also shown up before, who is soon in this story assassinated. Let me make one more point before we jump in and read the passage. What is it you should be getting from this book? If you were here with us for Mother's Day, uh, I mentioned it was a strange passage to preach on Mother's Day. If you were here the week before, it wasn't that much more normal. These are odd stories that we're reading in 2 Kings. Many of them horrific and violent and in times confusing. Even when you get a good story, it's an axe head floating. You know, it's these strange stories in this book. It's a long study we've undertaken to do the whole thing. But once again, we come to this idea that what God is doing here, if we have the humility to see it, is something that is unexpected. The book over and over is filled with reversals. The way we see things and expect things suddenly, by God's intervention, change. And once again, we get to compare the humility of the people who turn to God and receive that blessing 
with those who often trust their political power, their political schemes, the systems and structures of their own day, and find them over and over by these same stories, thwarted and failing. That comparison is like a hammer that hits over and over in this book. Trust the power of this world and you'll see it fail. Embrace the humility of need and watch as God intercedes on your behalf. It pounds away story after story, reversal after reversal. It knows that we as humans like Israel are prone to miss that point, to read about it again and again, week after week, and to walk back into our own lives and somehow miss how it could possibly be the same where we are. Um, There's a great little book, I'd actually recommend it if you don't own it, by Eugene Peterson called The Invitation. It's not a a book you would sit down and read front to cover. What it is is it's a few pages for every book of the Bible and offers a kind of summary for what that book is. In his writing on 2 Kings, he writes this, specifically about, again, what are we supposed to be taking from all of these strange stories? Peterson writes, The benefit of reading this book is enormous. To begin with, our understanding and experience of God's sovereignty develops counter to all power-based and piety-based assumptions regarding a God's effective rule. We quit spinning our wheels on utopian projects and dreams. Following that, we begin to realize that if God's sovereignty is never canceled out by the so deeply sin-flawed leaders in both our culture and our church, we can quite cheerfully exult in God's sovereignty as it is being exercised, though often silently and hiddenly, in all the circumstances and details of our actual present moment. I do think that's a good description of what this book is. It forces us, with a kind of sobriety, with sober eyes, to recognize the failures of trusting in political power, even religious power, trusting in just mechanisms and schemes and organization, It's the sobriety that lets us look at our own brokenness and the brokenness of the world. And yet in the midst of it, seeing the way that God reverses things, come to have hope. I really do think that 2 Kings is a book about hope. Although the stories within it are some of the most absent of hope in all of the Bible. How could that possibly be? Well, I think chapter 8 is a good picture of it. If you've got your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Again, these two images, these two stories, side by side. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Now, Elisha had seen to the woman whose son he had restored to life. Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appeared to the king for her, appealed to the king for her house, excuse me, in her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, who Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the day land until now. The next story, the second picture. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Benadad, the king of Syria, was sick. 
And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son, Benadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. If that sounds confusing, we'll get to that in a moment. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men, and with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open the pregnant women. And Hasael said, What is your servant who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who he said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth, and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. This morning what I want to do is actually work backwards through those two stories. I want to start with this story of Hazael and Ben-Hadad, the king in Syria, and then come back to this image of the Shunammite woman. I want to take this story of the Syrian king first, and then look at how it compares, this foil, this contrast to the other story. A couple times now, we've come across this character, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Remember, Israel, the nation divided to the north, their neighbor still further north, Syria or Aram, as it's sometimes called. Here, Ben-Hadad is currently king over that country. The Syri- Syria continues to be a conflicting neighbor to Israel. They continue to make raids and war. Ben-Hadad seems here to have some respect for the power of Elisha, but you notice even as the prophecy comes that they will put war and murder the Israelites, he considers it, the servant Hazael, a great deed. These are certainly no friends or neighbors of Israel. Apparently, Benadad has become ill and worried that this illness will take his life. He sends one of his most trusted senior advisors, Hazael, to inquire of Elisha, who, though he may be from the enemy, is still considered someone who knows the future, a prophet who can predict things and sort things out. And so he sends Hazael to try and discern a word from Elisha about whether or not he will survive. Notice Hazael comes with a great treasure, loads on camels, a great wealth. He's come to pay for this knowledge, to access something by a form of payment. The Syrians still don't really understand Elisha or the power of God. They imagine it's something they can barter or broker with for access to information. Elisha says something very strange to him. You will certainly recover, and you will certainly die. If that seems cryptic, it did in the first century as well, too. It sounds so confusing that Hazael stands there staring at him, waiting for some kind of an explanation. He stares at him so long that they two become awkward and embarrassed by the way nothing else is being said. He apparently is wanting an explanation for how both can be true. He's come with the question, one or the other, and instead he's received the answer, both. At that point, Elisha begins to cry, to weep. 
It really is a very strange scene, and certainly not what they had expected, coming with the wealth to pay this mighty man of God. Here they get this cryptic answer, and then his tears. He tells Hazael that he is weeping because God has given him a vision, a vision of what specifically Hazael will do to the Israelites. He will set fire to their towns. He will kill their young men with the sword in battle. He will murder their children and even the pregnant women. Hazael is shocked by this, not because it's a horrific scene, but because he says, I'm but a dog. I'm a low man on the totem pole. How is it possible that I will carry out some victory like this, that I will give orders and commands like this? Elisha responds that Hazael will soon be king of Syria. That's a huge statement, a kind of uh, dangerous statement. The kind of statement that could get you put to death, and certainly even the person who heard it, in a world where kings like Benadad were always nervous about those who would try to rob them of their throne. Hazael is not the son of Benadad. He works in the administration, but he's not in line for the throne. He's not there because if his father died, then he would be next. He's there carrying out an order, an assignment given to him. So what does he do? He goes back, delivers half of the message, you will recover, and the next day assassinates Ben-Hadad, suffocates him, and claims the throne for himself. There's actually some uh, passages outside of the Bible that help us know the accuracy of this story. There's an Assyrian, so separate from Syria, Assyria, an enemy uh, nation. There's an inscription that talks specifically about this king, Hazael. In that description, it writes, Hazael, a commander, literally translated, a son of nobody, so not in line for the royal seat, seized the throne, called up a numerous army, and rose up against me. This is the Assyrian king. I fought with him and defeated him, taking the chariots of his camp. He disappeared to save his life. I marched as far as Damascus, his royal residence, and cut down his gardens. So, interesting, we do know, even outside of the Bible, that there was this Hazael king in Syria that he rose to power by seizing the throne and not being in line, not being a son to any ruler. So what do you make of this story? Elisha really prophesies two things. He prophesies the political maneuvering of Syria, that one king would usurp the throne from another. But he also prophesies a coming destruction, a kind of judgment over Israel. It probably shouldn't surprise us that two kings in Syria would murder each other to reclaim power. Kings taking power into their own hands, kings using any deceptive mechanism they can to gain power for themselves. This stuff has been all over the book of First and Second Kings, and to be frank, it's all over our world too. Uh, we've managed to create a political system in which rulers don't actually murder one another. They just murder each other's reputations and try to ruin each other so that they too can claim power. Uh, I don't think it's a surprise to say that politicians are still ruthless in their tactics today too. It's always been that way. Those who want power look for angles, opportunities, decisive moments of action to step into it. And it's no different here with Hazael who sees in this prophecy a moment an opportunity, the possibility he could be king. And he takes it with a kind of decisive action. But maybe what is surprising is that Elisha weeps in the middle of this story. Why is he crying? He's seen what this king, Hazael, rising and ascending to the throne will mean. That it will be violent. That he will be used to bring judgment on Israel. 
that all of this conflict and violence will play out now in Israel's history because of this moment. As there will be more destruction to come in this book, more conquests into Israel, more battles and wars, the pillaging of cities and exile, I think it's important to pause for a moment as we get into this section of 2 Kings and consider why these violent predictions, why these events happen in the Bible, why they happen to God's people. Some people read passages like this, prophecies of God's judgment, and what they find in them is a kind of God who is fickle and violent, who's constantly turning against his people and unleashing the sword, unleashing death. God just tosses his people to the wolves if somehow they don't do what he commands. And so we can sometimes emerge with this image of a God who seems less than interested, less than protective of his people. But I don't think that's the right way to read First and Second Kings. I don't think it's the right way to really read any of these prophecy passages from the Old Testament. God's judgment is often a warning, a warning about the consequences of what happens when his people decide to abandon him and cut their own path in the story. What you get in the Old Testament are plenty of these horrific scenes. But for every page in which Israel suffers under the sword, in which destruction comes upon them, there is before it page after page after page of God trying to intervene, of warning his people, of sending prophets, of doing signs and wonders to call his people back to him. God sends prophets, at times even good kings, to urge his people to obey, to trust him, to follow him. And over and over, having been warned and seen the power of God to intervene, what do those people do? They continue down their own path. They harden their hearts. They turn away from him. They obsess over the things of the world and the nations around them. It's been interesting uh, as a father raising two kids. Sometimes you'll recognize that your kids are very different and have to be uh, explained very differently the things of the world. Will, when he was born, pretty naturally recognized rules and the benefits of following the rules. Charlotte needed to understand why the rules existed, that there had to be some sort of logic behind these rules that to her seemed just unjust or unfair. So to Will, you could say, don't run out into the street, don't play with a knife, and he understood the category of rules. For Charlotte, you would get the question, why? Which would be preceded by the next question, why? Eventually, you would work yourself to the point of saying, you will get run over by a car. You will cut your finger off if you play with a knife. Once you got to that kind of graphic detail, then it all became perfectly clear to her, and she was happy to go along and obey with the rule. She needed to understand, really, what was at risk in this moment. I think there's something like that going on with Israel. God offers them a way of living. Do this, and you will prosper. Follow these laws, and I will pour my blessing out. It'll go well for you. Yet, they find themselves constantly interested in other things. And so God ups the stakes, showing The consequences of you living your own way will be devastating. Or another way to say it that seems so often true in these books of 1 and 2 Kings is this. If you try to be like the other nations, then your history and your lives will play out like those of other nations. If you want the power and the kings and the armies, the image that the nations around you have, then be prepared to suffer the same wars and atrocities, the scheming and manipulating and the instability. Take, for instance, the book of Deuteronomy. Moses, before Israel passed into the promised land, preached one of the longest sermons we have recorded, in which he reminded Israel of all the things that God had done for them through the Exodus, and in which he reminded them of the law that God had given them in the wilderness, 
and in which he told them of all of the blessings awaiting them in the promised land if they would just be obedient to God. He also warned them that should they remain unfaithful, the consequences would be like that of the nations around them. So Moses records in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in your city and cursed shall you be in your field. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over yourself to be in a nation neither you nor your fathers have previously known. Or listen to this one and see if it sounds familiar from last week. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls fall in which you have trusted until they come down throughout all the land and you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom eat neither the Lord your God, who the Lord your God has given you. And in that siege and in the distress, all shall experience it. Now, one person could read that and say, how could God let something like this happen to his people? But if you pay attention to the book of Deuteronomy, what you see is a God who's trying to save his people from this destruction. Look at the way of the world. Look at what happens when people turn away from God. We need not look further than our own day. The conflicts and the wars, these images of second kings are not so ancient or so far away. In places in this world our very day, people suffer by the same famines and destruction, the death of armies and the sword with little difference to what God is doing, what God has called us to do or be. And so it is over and over, God warned his people, do not trust your walls, do not trust your kings, do not become like the nations around you, for you will inherit what those nations always inherit, which is violence and destruction. What Second Kings has been is a realization of what God has wanted for his people, what he has for so long warned them about, and over and over they reject. When you try to be like every other nation, when you want to live like the world, then you will inevitably get what the world gets. You will get what comes with being a nation like all the others. To all this divine prophecy, this warning laid out before him, Hasael, this Syrian general, his response is to stare at Elisha, not understanding to stare at him until the silence becomes awkward and embarrassing. I think it's an image of the world as well. This too is the way of the world. All this talk of God and judgment and his law, does it not seem strange and foreign in our world? Do we not hear it and at times sit silently staring until it becomes awkward, embarrassing? What is this God is saying in this world that seems so strange and ill-fitted? And so it is that often God blinds the eyes of those who do not wish to really see, the ears of those who do not wish to hear what it is he's offering. Our world imagines that there is now no need for God. Worse, that God is somehow holding us back from human progress, taking away from us our true purpose or identity or joy. We declare God dead and we go to work building our own cities, our own walls, our own armies, our own utopia. Peace by the sword, the way we'll have it. And what is it that we too get in this world? But sickness and conflict and war and famine and moral collapse. How ironic we are the people who imagine ourselves so progressed, so far down this line in human history, and yet we turn on the news and we read of atrocities and war 
and famine. It does start to grow awkward. The silence, embarrassing. The way in which our own world, our own ways, the things we trust never quite pay off. Never take us to the place they promised to take us. And yet we hear God's call to trust him, to follow him. And still we harden our hearts and turn away. We hear his warnings of coming destruction, the inevitable path that we find ourselves on. We skin, stare silently, turn away, and harden our hearts. Why do we imagine that we can ignore God's ways and somehow live as we please and that it will all work out for us in the end, that human progress will take us somewhere, when story after story after story of history compels us to see the dead end? I want you to remember this image here of Elisha weeping. Elisha is the voice of God. He represents, as Elijah before him, God's presence and God's word to that people. And Elisha, in this moment of the continually hardening hearts of Israel, does not find himself cursing or stomping or berating, but instead weeping. He is the man of God, recognizing the brokenness, recognizing the path that Israel is on, recognizing that rebellion will ultimately have the consequences of defeat, And his response is not anger, but tears. The people will not listen. I couldn't help reading that passage, not thinking of the image of Jesus. Remember the scene from Luke's gospel in which he looked down from the hill above Jerusalem, looked down on that great city. Luke records, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. It is easy to read of these stories in the Old Testament and imagine a kind of angry, vindictive God. A God who tosses his people around. But story after story, those who really have hold of God, those who speak for God, find themselves with tears, find themselves pleading and entreating God's people, find themselves weeping over Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. This is God, weeping over the hardening of human hearts, longing for us to turn to him, waiting like a father to run out and embrace a prodigal son, loving us enough to tell us the truth and to lay before us the consequences of our pride and cutting our own way in this world. The way of this world will bring judgment, will bring pain, will bring destruction. And Israel did not listen. Jerusalem did not listen. Our world does not listen. But this is, as I said at the beginning, not the only story in this chapter. There is the Shunammite woman who reemerges unexpectedly. Warned of a famine, Elisha having given her notice that seven years of famine was coming as a judgment, she and her son are once again spared by traveling down to the coastal plains of the Philistines. After the famine has ended, she returns once again to find things turned upside down, her home and her land now being possessed by somebody else. She goes to the king to try and plead her case. And it just so happens 
the Gehazi. Remember, Gehazi was Elisha, uh, Elisha's uh, servant, the one who was working with Elisha, who had gone out and out of his pride and greed had demanded payment and then lied to Elisha about it. And because of it, Gehazi had been kicked out of the service of Elisha. Well, it just so happens that having been removed from support of Elisha, he now goes and supports the king. He works in the administration and is apparently an advisor, which sounds about right. That sounds like the way it works in the world. He got kicked out of his ministry job, so now he's run for political office, and apparently he's an advisor to the king, having no longer been capable of serving with Elisha. But it does actually, in this story, prove to be providential. He is there speaking about all of the great miracles Elisha has done when it just so happens that the very woman whose son Elisha had raised, who he had just been telling the king about, wanders in before them. This apparently impressed the king. It impressed him so much to see the living proof of the story, the son and the mother there before him, that he agrees to deal with her case and sends an official with her back to her land to give it all back to her. Every possession she had, every piece of land and dwelling, hers again. Her story is not a simple one. An exile, leaving home and place to survive a famine, recognizing that this son who had been born to her, once barren, then died, then resurrected, now still lives in a world in which famine could take him. Yet God, over and over, finds himself at the center of this woman's story. A needy woman in need, who doesn't escape that need by one miracle, but even as each need reemerges in the story, finds some way that God is present. Once a gift from Elisha, the attention. Once Elisha praying, the resurrection of a son. Here, a divine word that comes to her of famine. And then a chance encounter the right people in the right room at the right moment for her land to come back. Notice Elisha is now not even present in this story. No one particularly prophetic is. God would use two greedy and compromised political leaders to bless his daughter, this woman, in need. Remember that Peterson quote I read to you at the beginning. We begin to realize that if God's sovereignty is never canceled out, by the so deeply sin-flawed leaders in both our culture and our church, then we can quite cheerfully exult in God's sovereignty as it is being exercised, though often silently and hiddenly, in all of the circumstantial details of this present moment. God can raise the dead. God can make axe heads float. He can give the barren woman a child. He can call down armies chariots and horsemen of fire. And he can use this whole compromise system, two people that just happen to be in the right room at the right time to give everything back to the woman who had lost it all. For as true as that first story had been, the world with its manipulation of power, the coming destruction, the violence around us, this strikes me as true as well, how God does work. Sometimes in obvious and great miracles, and sometimes miracles done by chance encounters. A word, a person, a coincidence. But in all of it, God is at work. None of it escapes him. Not that room with compromised political leaders. Not the room where that woman lived and wished for a son, but was barren. All of it. 
the provision of a famine in the Philistines, the returning of land back in Israel. These two images, these two stories side by side, really do give you two ways of looking at the world, at your own life. One, how you use things for your own advantage, how you watch for opportunities and decisive moments, how you act to cut your own path, to make your own course, how you use the things around you to your own advantage, or how you recognize God doing something. How instead you quiet your own heart and look for signs, evidence, chance encounters, and miracles in which God is at work, his kingdom present. Two ways of having in this world. One, taking in the moment what is right. The other, receiving. Receiving it in places you hadn't thought to look or expected to find it. One, a constant attention for the world. The other, an attention for God. One, an obsession with what the world has, an obsession with what you could have. The other, with what God is doing, the blessings that come along with it. Notice that this official, Ben-Hadad, approaches. Ben-Hadad sends him with riches, camels loaded with gold and silver. And so it is that that very official in which he entrusts comes back and murders him. The irony of it, the one represents him, takes his place. Look at the second story. The official, the Israelite king appoints. He doesn't just send the woman back. He sends the woman back with an official who gives her everything. So the king appointed an official for her saying, restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. This is the God of great reversals. To the one who trusts the ways of the world, the way of the world comes back to murder and to take. To the one who trusts God, the official leads us out, the compromised official, but by God's grace and mercy leads us out to restore all things, to return all things, to give all things that were lost. This, the God of reversals, of miracles, of chance encounters. And how she must have recognized that it had come by grace, by mercy. And that in God's warning is not that same grace and mercy. In God's weeping for us to hear his voice and repent, is there not that same grace and mercy? That to trust him is to have all things restored, to have all things returned. But to turn our back is to have them all lost, to have them all taken, forfeited. This morning, before you, are those two stories, those two ways of being, and those two consequences received by it. This word, this warning of judgment, and this chance encounter of grace and mercy and all things restored. Let's pray together this morning and we'll worship. Heavenly Father, I can't help thinking over and over in these stories how much like our own day they feel. We know when we turn on the news that this is not a safe, peaceful world, but it's one in which war continues, in which death and injustice continues, in which the loss of children continues. We feel it in our own towns, in our own homes, the conflict, the growing conflict, the desperation that the people around us have to make peace by power. And yet we see over and over in these stories in our own day how rarely it works. 
God, we pray that we would not be like those who harden our hearts and turn away, who in desperation try to solve these things ourselves. But God, I pray you would give us a different kind of hope. I pray you would give us a hope that comes in unexpected ways by grace and mercy alone. That we, like the Shunammite woman who find ourselves over and over in new needs, barrenness and death and famine and the loss of possessions, Yet we, like her, would look back and see the ways that unexpectedly you did good. That in the midst of loss, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, there is that same hammer beat of your mercy that comes through. That you are there. That you are reversing things. That you are restoring things. Not by this world's power or its laws or its swords or its systems. But in ways this world stares at and can't understand that we who know you, who sense your spirit at work, recognize your kingdom coming. So God, fill us with hope. Let us be amongst those people who look and watch and wait, who obey and believe and trust. God, let us not harden our hearts to your ways, especially not in this time when so many are, but soften our hearts. Pour your spirit into us and give us new wisdom, God. Like you did this woman, warn us and show us the traps before us. Save us and rescue us. Do miracles in our lives, God, that we may glorify you, that we may point to them and demonstrate to the world that you are a God greater and more powerful than the ways of this world, that you are King of all kings, Lord of all lords. And though the world misses it and can't see it, God, we let us be those people who do who worship you for it this morning. Our hope is in you. Our lives are in your hands. Our future is yours. And God, we worship you because we see the way in which you have given us grace and mercy. The way in which you have given your life that ours might be restored to us. That we might have life and life eternal. So we trust you again. We commit ourselves again to hear and listen and obey. And we look and we watch for you to do those reversals again by your grace and mercy in our life and in this world. We worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of the things I keep thinking as we go through 2 Kings is um, how much like our world it feels. How much similarity I see. Thousands of years ago, these ancient conflicts, yet that broken human nature, yet that pride and the trust in political power. But what that also means is the same God who was intervening and doing things then is the same God that's intervening and doing things now. That if the world was in the same brokenness and the same need, we have the same God who's still at work, who's still reversing things and pouring out grace and mercy and intervening in ways miraculous and ways that seem like coincidence. So we learn to trust. We learn to have hope. We learn that this story in 2 Kings doesn't just spiral out into nothing. But God works in the midst of the brokenness and preserves a people. And though it will be long, he brings that people back to Jerusalem. And it's in that city that he sends a new king, a king of kings. And though they crucify him, he is resurrected and still coming again. The same God doing the same things, pouring out the same grace and mercy. And so when we find ourselves in times traumatic, difficult, and overwhelming... To read these stories and know that God is doing then what he will also do again today. Hope. Hope in the midst of it. Heavenly Father.
thank you this morning that you are the same God. That as this world spins out, as it becomes desperate and violent, as conflict builds, as our projects fail, that God, you are always there with grace and with mercy, pleading, warning, and weeping. This image of a father waiting to run out and welcome us back home, to throw a feast again in our honor. That you are always there. So we take hope this morning. We pray that you would do it again. Intervene in the conflicts of our day. God, intervene in the chaos, the moral chaos of our day. God, do miracles. Reverse things for your glory again, God. And yet, should you tarry longer, we trust, we wait, we keep our hope up, knowing that you are coming, that you are King of all kings, Lord of all lords, the same yesterday and today and tomorrow still to come. So we live into it, believing and hoping again, trusting by your grace and mercy. Give us courage. Pour your spirit into our hearts that we may see it, recognize it, and know your word to us as they did then, that we would be people obedient to it, that you have given us all things, that you have restored to us all things, that you have wiped away every tear, and that it is still coming in even greater ways, God, that we can fully understand. Until that day, we go on living by faith and by hope. It's in your name we pray. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance to you and give you peace. Amen.